Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. The general principle behind interoperability is having the ability to share electronic health records effectively so that health providers and patients have the right information at the right time at the right place. And with many of our speakers on this show, one of the concerns that comes up is the question of privacy. So if we're to live in a world where patients and all their care providers can easily access the right information at the right time, does that mean that some of our private health information may end up in the hands of people that we don't want to see it? Today's guest may have the answer to something called data segmentation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And we're very excited to have on our show today, Dr. Hannah Galvin and Laura Hoffman. Now, Dr. Galvin is Chief Medical Information Officer for Cambridge Health Alliance, an innovative academic public health system providing care for all in need throughout the Boston Metro North region. Dr. Galvin is a clinical informatics thought leader and a nationally recognized expert in the segmentation of data to protect patient privacy and promote interoperability. She is also a clinician, an experienced primary care pediatrician hospitalist with specialization in the child abuse medicine. Finally, and the subject of our program today, Dr. Galvin is co-founder of the Protecting Privacy to Promote Interoperability, the PP2PI National Expert Workgroup. That workgroup is sponsored by HIMSS, the Health Information Management Systems Society, IHEUSA, which is the Integrating the Healthcare Enterprise USA and the Drummond Group. We also have Laura Hoffman with us. Ms. Hoffman is Assistant Director of Federal Affairs for the American Medical Association, the AMA, where she represents the AMA before the executive branch and health IT issues, data privacy and security, and patient non-discrimination and health equity matters. Before the AMA, Laura worked as an attorney with Feldsman Tucker Liefer Fidel Health Law Practice Group, with a focus on federally qualified health centers and patient privacy matters. Laura too works with the PP2PI, the Protecting Privacy to Promote Interoperability Workgroup. Very happy to have you both on your show today, on this show today, uh, and uh, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having us, glad to be here. All right, so let's let's start a little bit uh, with your background. Dr. Galvin, uh, I'm fascinated by your background, especially in the fact that we see both a clinician and somebody in the IT very deep in the IT data space. And to me, that seems like two very different fields with different talents that you need for each, but clearly you've defined them, uh, combined them in your many roles. Can you draw a relationship between them? Can you tell us how you came uh, to be in this space? Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting story. So uh, I think it was born a little bit out of necessity. I, I worked through college and med school in IT, uh, working at help desks and, uh, you know, just needed some cash like most college students um, and loved it. Uh, I, I was a pretty techie kid and um, and I really, you know, loved, loved doing it. Um, I think there are, are some similarities between tech and medicine in, in that you kind of come in, uh, are presented with a problem 
problem. You need to sort of collect data and figure out uh, what the problem is that you're you're trying to solve. Work with various stakeholders and and uh, gain other pieces of information from from sort of those other uh, partners, and then uh, look to to work together to sort of solve the problem. Um, and so I think some of the things that drew me to medicine and drew me to wanting to to want to be a good doctor and to to solve problems for patients uh, were some of the same things that that drew me to technology. And then once I uh, graduated from residency, that was right around the time of meaningful use, and uh, a lot of organizations were going live on EHRs. And so, uh, what did they do? But they they tapped the the new uh, attending who uh, had some tech background and said, "Hey, can we uh, can we use your skills to to help us go live on this EHR?" And and uh, although I was uh, really enjoying patient care. Um, I, I also found that I loved that side uh, of IT and really working together to, to uh, develop systems-based solutions at that point, right? Um, to, so that I was treating not just one patient, but treating uh, populations and leveraging the technology uh, that I understood so well to, um, to uh, develop larger solutions and make a larger impact. And so I think I married the two uh, together very well, and they both sort of came together very well for me. Um, and then, you know, my, my clinical focus has really been around vulnerable populations. And so the focus around privacy uh, ha has just been a natural one when it comes to informatics, because we do face all of these challenges, uh, uh, particularly around privacy. And there, there may not be uh, um, a lot of people who understand the real challenges and needs um, of uh, populations who may not be speaking out for themselves around their privacy needs, around the impact to the care uh, that these these challenges pose um, for patients who who may not feel like they um, like they can advocate for themselves uh, in the same way and who may uh, uh, run into issues with clinicians um, when they don't feel that their privacy is, is being respected um, and, and, and may not know uh, sort of where to turn uh, for that. And, and I think that, that we have um, really some, um, we have the privilege to um, be able to, to act on their behalf, and we have the, uh, uh, the, the responsibility to do that. And so I think that, that has sort of led to a natural um, uh, development of, of an expertise and, and, and interest in this area. Um, so, yeah. Good. Yeah, that's a terrific story. And I think it, it gives, you know, uh, maybe hopes and dreams to anybody slaving away at an IT service desk right now that, you know, they can... <laughs> <laughs> they can uh, be a pediatrician or also make a larger impact on the system at large, as you say. And uh, uh, Laura, you you have an interesting role as well, educated as a lawyer, uh, but now you're at the intersection of IT, healthcare data, healthcare policy. Looks like some of your work brings you into uh, representing or speaking for vulnerable populations as well. So tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, thanks. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was listening to Dr. Galvin's story and certain similarities were kind of popping out. Clearly, I'm not a clinician, but, um, you know, from the time I was young, I certainly had an interest in tech and, you know, remember being in kindergarten and playing computer games and my parents and grandparents were fascinated by this, you know, newfangled thing or whatever. But, you know, I basically grew up as a digital native. Um, and so, you know, oddly enough, when I graduated law school, I had studied um, 
largely kind of like international human rights and global health in law school. And that was my intended uh, trajectory. But, you know, graduated into the recession, uh, you know, 2008. Um, and so there weren't a ton of jobs in the human rights space at that time. Uh, so I did find my way to this law firm that that you mentioned in the intro, um, and they needed someone to work on the back end of their website and start uploading um, and populating information about federal grants into into their website. Um, so, you know, not glamorous work, but certainly got to learn a lot um, about community health centers at that time. And um, as time went on, I started kind of doing more substantive legal work. Um, and in 2013, the HIPAA omnibus regulations came out and uh, kind of as Dr. Galvin mentioned, you know, I was like, low person on the totem pole who's going to start learning about these regulations now. Um, so I volunteered and really dove into it. Um, and actually, you know, it all was for the best. I really enjoyed learning about it um, and started to develop a real sense of how privacy is tied to some of my longstanding interests around human rights and civil rights. Um, and, you know, since that time, uh, I think my position on that has been really solidified, at least in my mind, that privacy is a human right. And, you know, just as Dr. Galvin was talking about how certain populations, especially those, you know, historically marginalized, um, a lot of folks are not able to advocate for themselves in that space. And especially with something like privacy and kind of data governance, um, it's usually thought of as techie and wonky and nerdy, right? It's that back-end IT stuff. Um, but no, when you when you ship, shift your perspective a little bit and start to think about the harms that can come to individuals and communities and populations overall, when um, data is not responsibly managed, you know, it becomes very clear how this fits into needing to kind of, um, again, pr protect people, um, sound the alarm almost for ways this harm can be done and collaboratively work towards solutions that can, you know, promote data sharing, promote data collection uh, for good things uh, while not exacerbating these inequities or creating new inequities um, that could harm folks. So, you know, how do we use more data, collect more data for public health that could improve the population of the country or the world while also not digging people kind of into a deeper hole uh, along the way? So, in any event, you know, tech and the law and health all kind of combined to create this uh, sweet spot that, you know, um, I think is very timely. And as Dr. Galvin said, you know, really a privilege and a responsibility to work on. So it's been a, a great getting to work with Dr. Galvin on some of the things that we're going to talk about today. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, and a number of themes come out, which I find uh, terrific is, you know, first, the idea of global human rights uh, and, and Dr. Galvin's idea of being at the bedside. But where you can find change in the world and where you can make an impact in the world is someplace, sometimes just in our backyard, and you can make significant uh, changes, right? The other thing I'm hearing is uh, using IT data as a tool to, you know, lift all ships, right? To find those vulnerable populations, speak for the populations, and using that as a tool uh, to fix some of the inequities that we have in healthcare. Uh, but also, uh, Laura, what you said is sometimes that tool, uh, like every tool, can be used as a weapon, and sometimes it's an un 
unintentional weapon, but uh, um, but but it can also hurt just as much as it can help. So so then tell us now about the protecting privacy to promote interoperable interoperable work group, the PP. To PI, uh, what what problem was it trying to solve, or uh, what was its uh, origin story? Yeah, so PP2PI started as a group of um, uh, pediatric informatics experts through the American Academy of Pediatrics, and it has grown. Uh, we were founded in 2018, and it's grown over the past uh, three years now to over 160 uh, stakeholders from across the industry, from uh, healthcare entities, from professional societies, from the major EHR vendors, uh, health uh, information exchanges, uh, from the payer space, from um, patient uh, advocates, ethics experts, privacy experts, uh, really across the, the spectrum. Um, and our goal is really to tackle this problem that the industry has really been kicking uh, down the road for years and years of how do you um, granularly segment sensitive data in order to protect patient privacy and promote interoperability and care equity um, in a, it's a term that we we have sort of coined uh, um, that, that we refer to as equitable interoperability. Uh, and what that really means is um, if I, as a patient, do not have any sensitive data in my record um, or any, any data that I would consider sensitive. Um, and that is a very subjective term, right? What's sort of classically sensitive could be things like behavioral health information, substance use disorder information, HIV information, reproductive health information, right? Um, but that uh, is, is very subjective and different to different people. For instance, if I'm Tom Brady, my uh, information about my my knee injury could be sensitive data, right? But for many people, that's not sens considered sensitive data. So it's very subjective. It's very patient-patient specific. But, um, but if I do not have any data that I consider sensitive in my record, then that data can be shared. My All of my uh, data in my record can be shared. Uh, so let's say I am in the ER and I was in a car accident. That ER physician can access the data from my primary care doctor's office, so the data about my medications, my allergies, my immunizations, um, my, my, my uh, past medical history, um, and, and provide me with the best possible quality care leveraged by interoperability. Um, and that's, that's one of the main reasons for interoperability is for providers to be able to then provide high, the highest quality care, having that knowledge at their fingertips, right? If instead I uh, do have some sensitive data in my chart, and I say, I, you know, I really don't want this to be shared, or that data is protected under my state law, or both. Currently, under our current system, um, I have to choose whether or not to share all of my data or none of my data, or that may be done for me algorithmically. Um, so we may have uh, uh, algorithms in our systems that say, okay, because uh, she has. Um, substance use disorder, um, we are not going to share her data until she signs an additional consent. And so now I show up to the emergency room and the physician may not have all of my data, at least until I sign some additional consent. And I may not get the benefits of interoperability that somebody without, say, substance use disorder 
would get. And so I am getting a quantitatively and qualitatively different level of care than somebody without some sensitive data would be getting. And we are creating inequities, as Laura mentioned, um, inadvertently. And so when we talk about equitable interoperability, what we mean is that we are uh, allowing someone or that we what we Our goal is to allow somebody with sensitive data to say, yes, I want to share all of my data, maybe accept this little piece. And how do we uh, show the the recipient system and the recipient provider that maybe there's some piece of data that they are not receiving so that we can minimize any any effects on patient safety? I can talk about that in, in a moment. But but how can we enable the sharing of data so that the person who has sensitive data can get the same care and have the same benefits of interoperability that someone without sensitive data can get. Um, and, and we're not having these types of inequities that we're experiencing right now in the current system as it stands. And I would um, just add, Matthew, um, you know, I think part of this is really critical to think about the relationship between an individual patient and their clinician. Um, you know, it's certainly an angle that the AMA has tried to emphasize in our advocacy where um, in addition to this concept of equitable interoperability that Dr. Galvin is outlining, which I think is just a fantastic framing, um, you know, it's it's not as if patients are currently all comfortable sharing all kinds of information with their clinician, right? I mean, <laughs> You know, you can have folks who are hesitant to disclose certain mental health concerns or behavioral health concerns out of fear that it will get shared with their health insurance and maybe their health insurance won't pay for their claims or they may, um, you know, reduce the scope of services that will be covered due to kind of lack of parity. Um there are even things, you know, again, there's there's stigma and bias and racism within the healthcare system, right? All kinds of isms. We're all humans. We all have them. So there are um, instances in which patients are not comfortable really sharing a lot of information unless they know it's going to remain private and between them and their clinician. Um, so I think that the other thing to think about here is if we want to encourage the goals of interoperability, as Dr. Galvin's describing, um, you know, we need to create a healthcare system that makes it safe for all people to share all different kinds of things that are going on with their health and in their life, you know, and this this only is compounded with um, the the kind of push in recent years to also collect social risk information and social needs information, um, particularly when you think about kind of sharing that outside of the walls of the healthcare system and and clinic. Uh, We really need to come up with ways that technology can assist clinicians in in sharing the information that needs to be shared for, for effective quality care of individuals, but also maintaining that trusted relationship with your patient and trying to mitigate some of the, you know, the human um, behaviors associated with kind of our own stigmas, biases, and um, and other things. So I think that the more we can figure out technology to help assist with that, um, the better care, you know, everyone across the board is going to get. Yeah, I, I think 
those are great points. And I also think, which has been brought up on this show a number of times, is this idea that it's not just clinicians that you're, you're maybe sharing your health information with. You may be checking a box because you want an app, right, a third party that's coming exactly. in. And you want to interact with your wellness. But, you know, how many push-ups you did this morning doesn't have to know everything uh, else that you've done in the last 20 years, right? So Exactly. Yep. And, and, you know, I think it, one of the, the uh, real concerns of the industry, and, and it's, it's a, a legitimate concern, is if a patient says, I, you know, I, I really don't want to share this piece of information, is then the clinician on the other end not going to be able to practice effective medicine or, you know, if I don't have that information. And that's really one of the, the real issues that that PP2PI uh, is intending to tackle. How should the clinician on the other end um, understand that there's information that they may not be receiving? And as a clinician, I can I can absolutely echo what Laura was saying. All the time, I, I know that I, I am not receiving uh, uh, 100% of the information or data from, from a patient or a patient's family, right? But how can we do this in the safest way possible? And how can we allow patients um, ownership of their data. I mean, we're really moving toward this new uh, paradigm where patients own their data and, and we're moving away from a paternalistic system where providers own the data and, and health systems own, own the data. And it's really the patients who, who own their data. And, and, and yet at the same time, how do you balance that with patient safety and with a provider understanding that there may be data that they are not privy to and they need to ask a patient about and say, hey, I think there's there's something here that that you may not have, you know, let me know about, you know, is there another consent that needs to be signed uh, and that type of thing. Um, but giving the patient ownership uh, over that. And so that is one of the things uh, very specifically that PP2PI is, is tackling. Uh, one of the reasons that we have stakeholders from across the industry, including uh, ethicists, including patient advocates, um, to, to really uh, try to give some recommendations on the best ways uh, to do this and, um, and, and gain the endorsement of the major clinical professional societies uh, as to what is the safe uh, practice of medicine in these really difficult and nuanced situations. So, so this is fascinating, actually, right? Because I think um, everything you're talking about, what what a patient can hold back and what the doctor needs to know, uh, and as as uh, you touched on, Laura, you know, this is has a lot to do with uh, the relationship between the patient and the doctor, and is this a, a switch, and, and how much is this going to switch the paternal system that we've got right now? Uh, fascinating stuff. But then, what what are we talking about here, Laura, when we say data segmentation? Um, wh what does it work? What is this thing called data segmentation? Sure. Well, so Dr. Galvin should speak to most of this because I am by no means an informaticist, uh, but I can give kind of maybe the layman's overview uh, to open us up and then we can dive into some more kind of technical details. But essentially, um, you know, segmentation basically refers to the concept of being able to break things up into smaller pieces. And so right now, the way um, data exchange tends to work in the clinical space is um, you've got kind of larger blocks of information. Um, they may be, you know, full documents, let's say, um, or, you know, maybe PDFs that can't be broken down into smaller pieces. And so what winds up happening to um, exchange data is oftentimes, you know, clinicians are forced to share 
all of uh, a certain medical record or or none of that medical record. Occasionally, they can break it down into you know big chunks and maybe send a big chunk of a record, um, like a certain document. Uh, but within that document, there may even be smaller pieces of information that that you want to break out. Um, and this, you know, this issue has been around for, I mean, decades, honestly. Um, even back at the firm, I remember getting questions from community health centers about, you know, hey, how am I supposed to share my 14-year-old's medical record with her parents when, you know, she came in for a confidential service to receive birth control? Like, what am I supposed to do? And so oftentimes clinicians will need to resort to printing out a medical record and going in by hand and kind of using a Sharpie and redacting certain types of information that, um, as Dr. Galvin mentioned, often under state law can't be legally shared with anyone other than the patient. Um, so, so the other thing, just before we move on, I, I wanted to mention as well, now that we're in kind of this new era of the information blocking or information sharing regulations, um, as they're commonly referred to now, um, there is a real imperative on most clinicians and practices and hospitals to share information when requested. So now, whereas in the past, Physicians might have said, hey, you know, there's a state law here that doesn't let me share something, or I know my patient really well, and I know they're not going to be okay with me sharing this record. Um, the physician had a lot of professional discretion in that sense. That still exists, don't get me wrong. However, the paradigm has kind of flipped from a you may share information to a must share information. Um, but unfortunately, most of our technology has not evolved to the state where these clinicians can, again, share pieces of information. So now we're back to this problem of, all right, gosh, I'm being told I have to share this record, but my technology only allows me to share the whole document or the whole record. How am I supposed to comply with my obligations under information blocking and also comply with what I know as a clinician and my professional responsibility and my patient's wish or state law, you know, one of the above? Um, how do I comply with those competing obligations? So one of the things that ONC baked into their information blocking regulations are exceptions around um, you know, if your technology can't do this, then all right, maybe you're in compliance, but you know, you need to document that, you need to come up with other ways to share it and multi-step process. So what we are trying to do is think about, all right, again, how can technology help me break this, these big documents down into smaller pieces so that I don't need to use those information blocking exceptions so that I can comply with state law and I can still respect my patient's preferences around um, you know, sharing data with my clinicians and others who need it, but keeping the stuff I wanna keep private, private. Um, so I'll just give that intro and then you know, Dr. Galvin, if you wanna um, clean up any technical <laughs> mistakes I made or expand on some of the, the other info to that I'm sure will be of interest to Wheaties audience. That would be great. No, I, that, that was that was a great explanation, Laura. Thank you for um, for that. I think that 
the pieces that I might add uh, as well is that th there is a data standard um, to, to handle this. It's called, um, appropriately enough, data segmentation for privacy, or DS4, the number 4P, DS4P. And it was first developed back in 2011 um, and, uh, and accredited in 2014. So it's been around for a while. Um, and that's the standard that we are typically referring to when we're talking about this. It was originally um, developed and allowed um, tagging of data in the CDA, so in a document, um, as Laura was saying, in, in a full document. It could tag data at the document level, at the section level of the CDA document, or even down to the entry level of that document to indicate that it was sensitive and that it was subject to restrictions uh, um, on, on disclosure and also redisclosure. That was an important piece, especially when it came to 42 CFR Part 2, which relates to substance use uh, disorder and substance use disorder clinics. Um, and it was piloted. It has been piloted in a number of sites and individual sites and individual uh, implementations. So uh, one implementation is one implementation and, and there hasn't been a lot of interoperability or uh, transmission of data between, between those sites. And since that time, implementation guides have been developed for HL7 and for FHIR as well. Um, DS4P FHIR leverages security labeling, uh, which can tag fire resources at the granular level, um, indicating not only that that resource is sensitive, but also a, a variety of metadata um, about the type of sensitivity and, and how that data should be handled. And, and that's really what we are looking at in, in PP2PI is DS4P FHIR. We're working with the HL7 security workgroup um, on that implementation guide. Um, and and DS4P Fire has been tested in connectathons and isolated demonstrations, um, but we again still haven't uh, achieved the type of widespread implementation um, that would meet some of the major use cases that that we encounter every day as clinicians. And you know, like I said earlier, uh, PP2PI was founded initially by a group of pediatric informaticists, and a lot of times this is thought to be a, a pediatric problem. You hear about adolescents and, and the sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, sort of the, you know, concerns around sort of sensitive data for adolescents. Uh, and there's been a lot of um, uh, uh, advocacy, I think, from the pediatric community and, and, um, and specific, specifically around adolescent medicine and a lot of state laws focus around protections for adolescents. Uh, but this really isn't a pediatric problem, and, and it's one thing that those of us who, who founded the, the group really understood. Um, this is a, an issue that affects all of us, and so when I talk about use cases, um, we are focused not, not only on the couple of pediatric use cases, adolescent use cases, and, and um, shared data between uh, maternal and child record, that's another pediatric use case that comes up a lot, but it really does affect all of us. Any one of us could we will uh, hopefully grow, grow old and we, we could lose capacity at some point and have someone else accessing our data and uh, someone else in our family um, or just, you know, need to go see a specialist, right, and have some piece of data in our chart. And as we have longitudinal medical records or electronic health records, th there is more and more and more data that over time we may not want, you know, 
10, 20 years down the road, some specialists that we see um, have uh, having access to every single piece of information in, in our chart. There may be something that we shared with one clinician at one, you know, you know, at one period of time that that we don't feel is appropriate to share with, you know, an optometrist. 10 years from now, right? Um, and not that an optometrist necessarily will go back combing 10 years through our records, but who knows, right? I mean, we, we may feel strongly about that, that particular piece of information or a family member having access to that information through the patient portal if they're a proxy for us. Um, so, you know, we think about um, you know, a patient who uh, who may need their medical care, may need a, a proxy to help them get to their medical appointments um, and, and access their medical care, but may also have some behavioral health information in their record uh, or some substance use uh, information in their record. And, and you know, they, they may not have told their family member about that, um, or they may not want to disclose that, say, to their physical therapist or to some other member of their care team as we expand care teams and the definition of care teams. Um, right. And, and not being able to uh, uh, segment that and having to decide sort of, again, kind of on this all or none basis. And so um, we have expanded the use cases uh, that have been were, that, that DS4P was originally designed uh, to, to, to utilize um, to, to meet some of these clinical needs, um, the behavioral health uh, uh, use case, a shared record, maternal child shared record, uh, adolescent, the adolescent use case, and, and as Laura mentioned earlier, social determinants use case. Now that we're collecting more and more social determinants data, there's more concern that, that that data in and of itself not only could be a privacy issue in that, you know, I might not want to share with everyone that I have financial insecurity or housing insecurity, but there could really be safety issues there if I disclose intimate partner violence and that gets into uh, uh, the wrong hands or, or is, is shared with my partner. And so um, so how do we protect this data in a, in a way that makes sense? And so those are some of the use cases that, um, that we are working on uh, uh, and, and that PP2PI has developed and, and we're working closely with the Gravity Project around the social determinants use case. And uh, we are leveraging those use cases um, to uh, promote standards revision uh, for the um, DS4P FIRE standard, um, as well as to develop a, a terminology value set, um, a, a nationally steward terminology value set, because we all need to be speaking the same language here. If I say at Cambridge Health Alliance, if I, if I talk about reproductive health data, or does that mean the same thing uh, as what Stanford says when they're talking about reproductive health data or what the University of Idaho says when they're talking about reproductive health data. How do we define that? And are we all speaking the same language uh, when we're defining these, these potentially sensitive topics? So that's one of the, the areas that we're working on. And finally, we're bringing the stakeholders together to really look at um, these major barriers and some of the major kind of controversial issues, if, a, if an informed patient does say, I do not want my reproductive health data or my behavioral health data to uh, go um, to this other entity, um, first of all, how is a patient informed <laughs> about the risks and benefits of that? Um, and then if they do uh, opt for that, what does that entity see? How much information does that entity get? Um, how would that redacted data be used in clinical decision support tools? So if I have HIV, 
can say, you know, I don't want um, information about my antiretroviral drugs being shared with, you know, my specialist. Um, if, if that specialist pre prescribes me a, a, a medication, does, do drug-drug interactions still include the medication that was redacted? And so providing uh, um, guidance on how that should be implemented. Um, and so we have a number of items like that, and we're, we're working through a modified Delphi methodology to provide that type of guidance uh, for implementation, because that is one of the major barriers um, as to why uh, uh, larger implementations have not been undertaken uh, so far. So that that's fascinating stuff, and 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 two two p two i. I'm getting a little better at saying it. I almost got it rolling off the tongue like you do, Dr. Galvin. Uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, pp two pi. If I if I was interested in this, I'm a, if I'm a clinician, or or what kind of stakeholders are you looking for? And and it sounds like there's both discussions going on as well as uh, use cases. Uh, what would it look like if I was to come in, and 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 how do I get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So we um, we have a large group meeting once a, once a month. We have a number of, of uh, subgroups. So we have a standards and terminology uh, subgroup, a working group. We have a clinical uh, subgroup, a working group. Uh, we have a uh, uh, usability and implementation working group uh, subgroup. We have a legal and policy working group, which Laura uh, heads up. Um, we have an ethics work group, and we have a patient advocacy work group, and they inform all of our all of our work. And so we. We have a number of work groups that that uh, uh, any interested stakeholder could be a part of, as well as our, our large group meeting as well. Um, I sort of uh, touched on sort of our, our sort of major areas of focus right now, and our roadmap is where you know where we are right now is uh, working towards standards revision. We are starting with the behavioral health uh, uh, adult use case and the adolescent use case, and then moving on to our social determinants use case and our linked record mother mother baby linked record use case. Um, and uh, we are working towards standards revision, the development of terminology value set, and this modified Delphi process. So if any stakeholders are interested in having their say in this type of implementation guidance, we would welcome you uh, joining, really getting to that heart of that, that really interesting, meaty work uh, uh, you know, currently. And so um, if you are interested in joining, uh, we can put in the, uh, the probably the show notes, um, uh, we have an interest form that you can fill out expressing, uh, you know, if there are any of the subgroups that you would be interested in joining, as well as to get you on our distribution list and an invite to the large group. Um, we are certainly looking for stakeholders from across the industry. Uh, specifically right now, uh, we would be very interested in more stakeholders from the payer space, um, more stakeholders um, from uh, uh, with expertise in geriatric medicine, in um, uh, women's health and in behavioral health uh, to just uh, uh, provide us with more viewpoints in those areas. Um, we also feel really strongly that if we are making recommendations on behalf of a national population, um, that we should adequately re represent that population. And so um, to that end, we have surveyed our stakeholders around a number of, of demographic data points and we continue to seek diversity, uh, ethnic, racial, uh, um, language diversity and diversity in gender identity, um, diversity around age, uh, uh, stakeholders with advancing age, educational status, financial status, uh, diversity in health insurance coverage, citizenship status, 
um, area of residency in the country. So, so um, we are we are definitely seeking stakeholder diversity, and um, so would welcome uh, interested stakeholders um, to help us represent uh, those uh, the population that that we are speaking on behalf of. So, we'll put the the interest form in the the show notes, and um, yeah, would look forward to anyone who would like to join us. Very good, very good. And and you referred to uh, uh, vulnerable populations and marginalized populations that don't have a voice. Uh, here's an opportunity to get that voice heard and, and get absolutely. involved. And absolutely. Um, so, any closing uh, thoughts, uh, Laura, Dr. Galvin? Um, any any? Let me ask you a question. Um, when will you feel as if um, this project has been successful? Like, what will the world look like? I, I'm walking into my doctor's office. What will the world look like where, where you've accomplished maybe what you set up to do or, you know, 90% of what you set up to do? Yeah, this is a this is a long, long-term project. This is a very complicated, uh, complicated uh, issue to tackle. Um, so I don't know if, <laughs> I don't know if even in, in, you know, my career, we will ever hit a hundred percent success, but, but I think that I will feel like we have really moved the needle when I can walk into my doctor's office and I, as a patient, uh, can make an informed decision. Uh, ideally what this, what it would look like is that I would go on a portal myself and say, you know, of my data from this, this EHR, this, this data, uh, um, uh, collection of data, this data set, um, I would like to, be able to share uh, this type of data with all of these people, and uh, you know, this data is you know very specific data is data that I would not like to share with these individuals. And I would be able to make that choice. I would be informed of the the risks and benefits of of doing so, and that I would be able to make to change those designations as I see fit. Um, and many patients may not may not care. It may not be an issue for them, but for those who would for whom it is an issue, it's a big issue. It's a, a care-defining issue, and um, and and that I think I think I would I would know that we move the needle when I hear from my patients that this allows them to trust. Um, and that, that, that it helps them to feel that they can trust and trust in the patient-provider relationship, and that um, yeah, that it improves their ability to feel like they're getting quality care. So, Laura, yeah, yeah, that that's so well said. Um, I guess if there was anything I was to I were to add, it would be that this kind of um, choice and autonomy would also translate into. Um, data exchange outside of the healthcare system as well, um, you know, and that's going to that's gonna require all kinds of efforts. I mean, you know, we're simultaneously plugging away on federal privacy legislation to help um, make sure that that data exchange kind of outside of HIPAA is, is equally well protected. Um, you know, just as Dr. Galvin said, I would love to be able to go into an app and say, you know, yes, I trust this app to keep my information safe and secure and private. Um, I would like to share this type of information to help with research studies, to help other patients like me. I would like to share it to communicate with other patients like me, um, but I sure don't want it shared uh, for marketing or for, you know, commercial profit, right? Like those kinds of basic concepts, I think, are also um 
are something that we need to kind of simultaneously try to address. Anytime we talk about data exchange, we need to also be talking about giving patients more control, giving individuals more control and autonomy over that. Um, and, you know, if we're going to get really crazy and dream, I would love to envision down the line um, a real shift in kind of the discriminatory and exclusionary actions that uh, that currently occur because of data. You know, I'd love to not hear anymore about people losing jobs or housing because of data that's been shared without their knowledge. Um, or, you know, have have clinicians or, or other individuals um, discriminate against people because of the kinds of health conditions that they struggle with. So, you know, that's kind of the the goal we're all going to keep working towards, I guess. And uh, hopefully, you know, it'll be It'll be a slow journey, but hopefully we can keep chipping away and doing a little piece by piece. Very good. I feel like there's so much we haven't touched on. Like uh, Laura, you just touched on the edge, you know, the the public health aspect of sharing your your parts of your your uh, clinical information for the good of you know the good of the public health and for certain you know disease research, all sorts of things that we haven't quite touched on. Uh, but it's been wonderful, uh, Dr. Galvin, Laura Hoffman. Thank you for being on the show. Fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. We've had Dr. Galvin and Laura Hoffman with the PP2PI project. Uh, and this has been the Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. You can find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.